Father, as we continue to think about the gospel, its centrality to our lives, help us as we consider texts of Scripture and as we labor together today in the Word and work our way from this table uh, to the ordinance of baptism as well. We're thankful for this day, for what you are doing in our lives as a church, in our lives individually. And we pray that we would gather and connect around this great message of salvation in Christ. For those who do not know Him that way, I pray that You'd draw them to saving faith as well. That You'd open blind eyes today and enable us by the power of Your Spirit to accomplish together here in community what we cannot accomplish alone. May we faithfully serve You and rejoice in Your presence as we have sung. And we will thank You in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. It's rare for us to observe both ordinances of the church in the same service, but providentially we do that today, and so it seemed fitting to consider the relationship between baptism and the Lord's Supper. Uh, More narrowly, I'd like us to focus in these few moments that we have on the symbolism of the ordinances and, and the relationship of that symbolic meaning. The Bible does not develop that relationship between the symbolism explicitly, but I think we can rightly infer and draw implicitly from that symbolism. What do we mean by symbolism, just to be clear? We mean simply that baptism and the Lord's Supper are rituals that picture truth. They stand as a picture of something much greater something much more significant, and yet they are a tangible evidence of that. Imagine a soldier that's headed off to war for a year, and he has a 15-year-old daughter to whom he is particularly close. They just seem to be able to finish each other's sentences, and they love each other very deeply. And as he's getting ready to leave, he leaves two mementos with her. Remember me by this, he says giving her these two keepsakes. They're they're not photographs or pictures in that sense, but they're they're something tangible that connects the two of them that they both understand. How is she going to keep those mementos? They're going to be treasured, aren't they? They're They're just these two little pieces that help her remember her father as he's gone and as she anticipates his return. Well, think of it. The Lord gave us just two ordinances. Just two ritual observances by which to remember Him until He returns. And so we should very highly value them and cling to them and understand the significance of them. It indicates also then that in tandem they sufficiently picture the truth on which our life together in Christ stands. The truths to which the symbolism points are meant to calibrate our worldview and our self-understanding in union with Christ. These words have already been sounded around the table here today. So what I'd like to do is just briefly to consider the symbolism of both, just stirring up our pure minds by way of reminder, to borrow the Apostle's phrase, But we want to consider them individually and then to bring them together and to think about how the symbolism plays together and on which we stand as a church, as believers in Christ. 
So first of all, the symbolism of baptism, we have to start with the word, with etymology. What does baptize mean? As you're certainly aware, that's a Greek word, it's not really translated into the English And to understand that symbolism of baptism, then we need to understand this Greek word to some degree. Now if I was to ask you, everybody just in the quiet of your mind or on a piece of paper, write down three synonyms of baptize. What would you write? What would you say? Three synonyms that show that you really understand the meaning of the word. Well, let's say right over there, there's a group of 13 to 15-year-olds walking down a street in Corinth. We're going back to ancient Corinth, and we say to these Greek-speaking young people, they're just friends walking down the street, and we say, hey, could you tell us what does baptize mean? Give us some synonyms for baptism. Now, it's not English, I get it, but what would they say? I'll give you two figs each if you can answer this. That's, that's the, the candy of their day, right? The candy bar of their day. So what would they say? They would say immerse, dunk, plunge, submerge, dip, swallow up. So I just earned four figs right there. It's easy for them because their moms baptize the dishes. They can point to the harbor over here in Corinth and say there's a ship that was baptized. It's laying at the bottom of the seafloor. And as smart kids, they could even give us some examples of how the Greek word baptizein is used figuratively. A man loses his job and is baptized in financial hardship. He's plunged into financial ruin. A woman is baptized, utterly immersed in the work of caring for her seven children. A murder by baptism was to intentionally drown someone. And on and on they could go, giving examples. In the Greek language, to baptize meant to entirely submerge an object into a liquid. And usually that was to immerse something then in water. How does, though, moving forward from that etymology, from that understanding, how does the New Testament incorporate that Greek word in the symbolism of the ordinance? Now, one could say that baptism symbolizes a washing and a cleansing, and that's very obvious to us as we think of uh, being plunged into water. But in Acts chapter 22, the Apostle Paul recounts his conversion experience on the road to Damascus to a crowd of Jewish listeners. And as he does so, he quotes Ananias, who called him to repentance with these words. He said, and now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins calling on his name. Now, we could say that wash away your sins connects only to calling on His name. Wash away your sins by calling on His name. But I don't know that we need to press that interpretation. I don't know that that's particularly what Ananias was even saying. In the New Testament, physical baptism and spirit baptism were seen as one composite event. And dicing and slicing and separating them was just something that they didn't do. We need to, I think, to some degree on our side of this equation, but they didn't see it that way. It was two sides of one coin. Spirit baptism, water baptism was one event, so to speak. But 
this idea, the cleansing of baptism, is a symbolic meaning that is not often mentioned. This is a rare place where we see that connection. Only rarely is the symbol washing and cleansing. The predominant symbolism of baptism in the New Testament is not a bath, but is death. The symbolism of baptism is death. And we see this far more clearly in direct didactic passages such as Romans 6. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. And similarly, this connection of baptism and death, and let me just say again, remember it's one composite event. So, so the, the baptism here and the meaning of it, in the, the symbolism to which it points, our union with Christ is seen as one event. Similarly in Colossians 2, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. Baptism, again, connected very directly here to death and to resurrection. Now some would argue in these two passages that they have nothing to do with actual baptism, that only spirit baptism is in view. But I I believe the reason for that interpretation is coming from outside of the text, from theological concerns that really aren't found in the text, and they're brought and imposed upon it. So I don't think there would ever be a, a, a defense that comes from the ancient context and from the biblical writing text that would indicate that this is the case. Where there is spirit baptism... There is physical water baptism. This connection is consistent in the New Testament. So baptism of the Holy Spirit and water baptism, the two sides of the one coin, inseparable companion truths, we see the connection here of the symbolism of baptism to death. And for our purposes here, then, immersion in water pictures the theological truth that a believer is swallowed up into the death of Christ. Immersion in water also here very clearly pictures the rising from the realm of death into new life with the risen Christ. There's a beautiful symbolism there, isn't there? The swallowing up in death. I mean, there's there's a certain movie some of us know about where you can be half dead. But you can't be half dead, can you? you're, You're in the realm of death. It's a complete submersion in that death. And so, the resurrection from the dead isn't... Jesus didn't rise out of partial death. He wasn't resuscitated in the tomb, but He rose out of the realm of death into the realm of life. And what a beautiful picture then in baptism of being immersed, plunged, submerged, swallowed up in death, and then rising to new life in Christ. The descent into the water burial, the ascent from the water, raised with Christ to walk in newness of life. This intended symbolism of death then 
exposes certainly the inadequacy of sprinkling and pouring water on a candidate's head. We do not sprinkle or pour dirt on someone, on a corpse. We bury them. Further sprinkling and pouring fail then to symbolize resurrection from the dead. They certainly can picture cleansing, but pouring and sprinkling cannot picture resurrection from the realm of the dead. The SBC's faith, uh, Baptist Faith and Message puts this so well. Christian Baptist, here's the summation then. Christian baptism is the immersion of a believer in water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is an act of obedience symbolizing the believer's faith in a crucified, buried, and risen Savior, the believer's death to sin, the burial of the old life, and the resurrection to walk in newness of life in Christ Jesus. It is a testimony to his faith in the final resurrection of the dead. The symbolism of baptism. Let's then think briefly on the symbolism of the Lord's Supper, or the table of the Lord. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says to the Corinthians, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? These verses reflect the cultural concept of table fellowship in the ancient world. To eat a formal meal with others held nearly sacred importance to them. You chose very carefully who you ate with and you thought very deeply about that meal. Paul's exhortation to the Corinthians to avoid idolatrous dinner parties, we could say it that way, his concentration here is assuming this concept. As we gather for such a meal, we are showing identification. We are showing fellowship. We are relating in this way to the one with whom we are eating. So he says, be very careful where you eat. Now, I think our understanding culturally of eating is a bit different. I don't think that we need to necessarily be tied to this background and to this context, but you get the point as we go back to the ancient world. There was a fellowship there. There was a oneness that was expressed there. And indeed, in the best of dinner parties, that's exactly what's expressed in our time, isn't it? A oneness, a closeness, a fellowship, an identification with one another. But the symbolism, there's the symbolism of table fellowship. Let's deepen that a bit and talk about then the symbolism of fellowship with Christ in the Lord's table. The Jews disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? This was in that context, Jesus making the statement. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. 
Now, obviously, Christ's opponents are just blind to what he's saying. They, they, they stumble over these words. He speaks not of literal blood and flesh, of cannibalism, but he speaks of spiritual fellowship and a mystical union that runs so deep, it runs deeper than anything that they could conceive, his enemies. But it runs so deep, this fellowship, that in mystical union with Christ, we can only describe it as a feeding on Christ. A feeding on the body that was given for us in death. A feeding upon the blood shed for our redemption. The only way he can really picture it is that it is an eating of Christ. That he is the bread of life that we consume to eternal life. John chapter 6 is not the institution of the Lord's table. But some, and maybe particularly Baptists, have then the response to say that it has nothing to do with the Lord's table. But I, I think that's a step too far. It's not the institution of the Lord's table, but the connection of the wording is impossible to sever. Jesus talking here about eating His flesh, drinking His blood, and we see the connections of it as we move to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 as we've read earlier. But going back to 1 Corinthians 10, let's do that briefly. The cup of blessing that we bless, Paul says, is, not, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? I don't know how you sever that from John 6. Like pretend he didn't say that back there because it's got nothing to do with the Lord's table. It wasn't an institution but there's a, of the table, but there's a connection. To take this drink is to participate in the blood of Christ. The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. There's a symbolism there that, frankly, we lose in the symbol that we practice as a church. But there, there was one bread. One loaf of unleavened bread broken apart for the the 13 that ate, unless there were others we don't know about, but as that was broken with Christ and that where it was instituted, then in the churches, breaking that unleavened loaf of bread, there's a symbolism there. But notice that the emphasis falls again on the Gospel. A participation in the blood of Christ, a participation in the body of Christ. That translation, participation, that's a, that Greek word koinonia often translated communion or fellowship. You see, connecting it back to the ancient fellowship at the table. Here at the table, we fellowship with Christ. We commune with Christ. And particularly, we commune in the Gospel. The body and blood of Christ substituted for us, risen and coming again. Now, Beth and I could say of our four children that they ate at our table. If we use that figure of speech, no one would take that as a statement merely of food distribution. They ate at our table wouldn't be a way of saying they are our children. We nurtured them. We are family. And similarly, to eat at the table of the Lord is to say that you are God's child. That you are in vital fellowship with Christ on the basis of His saving grace. 
In a secondary sense, we see in the breaking of the one loaf a symbolism of the oneness of that family of God. We eat at the table as God's children. We come to this table as His family. So, with these concepts staked, let's go then thirdly to the relationship of the symbolic meaning of these ordinances. We see the symbolism in them connected to the Gospel. And then looking at them in comparison, we notice with baptism that it is the initiatory ordinance of baptism. It is the initiatory ordinance of the church. A submersion in water symbolizing death. We die once. Now there's nothing wrong with someone being baptized a second time, being re-baptized, if it's motivated by a desire to conform to the biblical pattern. This is most common when people believe, as they come to understand their walk with Christ, they come to say, I was baptized before I was truly converted. I was not born again when I was baptized. For that person to then be, so to speak, re-baptized, we could say is really just baptism. It's, it's common. There's nothing wrong with that at all. And other times, people seek rebaptism because of who baptized them, or where it took place, or how it took place. Often a combination of these things to say, I don't, I've really not come to, I've come to the conviction that that was not a genuine baptism. So leaving room for that. Sometimes there's a rebaptism that is appropriate, but in the symbolism, you die once. There is one place in time where trusting in the gospel of Christ, we say, I die to self. My identity in Adam is swallowed up in death. I'm buried with Jesus. That is the initiatory rite of the church. In other words, the individual says to the church, I've died with Christ to my old life and sin. I've risen with Christ to new life. And the church says, we believe you have a credible testimony of faith. We welcome you into the fellowship of our covenanting born-again body of the redeemed. This one time initiatory ordinance, this one-time identification with Christ, our death and resurrection with Him, is then beautifully matched by the second ordinance, the ongoing ordinance of the Lord's Supper. How often do we take the Lord's Supper? I think legitimately, honorably, up to once a week. Perhaps less, but it's an ongoing rite. So we die once and are buried in water. We rise once to eternal life, but in order to continue to live, we must repeatedly eat and drink the body of Christ. Don't take that the wrong way. We don't keep ourselves saved by eating and drinking. But there is an ongoing communion with Christ. What happens to the person that trusts Christ as Savior from everything we can perceive, follows Him in baptism, and then breaks fellowship with Him and never lives for Him again. We know that that person is not a genuine believer. There's not true life there. Because there's not a persistence in feeding upon Christ crucified and risen. Baptism symbolizes our definitive, decisive identification with Christ as His people. The Lord's Supper symbolizes our ongoing communion with Christ. 
as we feed upon who He is and all that He has done to save us and to secure for us a home in His eternal presence. So the eating together at the table as God's children is a symbol that we are walking in fellowship with Him. We are saying to the rest of the body of Christ, I cling to Christ alone for my salvation. I feed upon who He is and what He has done. So out of the waters rising to new life, we eat and drink the Lord's Supper. Our life sustained by communion with Christ and His people. And so, as we compare and relate these symbolic ordinances, they speak to who we are in Christ and how we should perceive our lives as His people. What matters most in life is not what you own. It is not the esteem that you can garner by moving forward in life and accomplishing things for Him. It is not the pleasures that you can secure or the ease with which you live your life. What matters most is our identity with Christ alone. What matters most is that you have died with Christ to sin and your old self in Adam. What matters most is that you have risen with Christ to eternal life. And what matters most is that you walk each day in vibrant communion with Jesus, feeding on the bread of life. This is what matters most. And it's in these ordinances that we in a sense hold, that we celebrate together, that says, this Christ is coming again. He is our life. He is our strength until we meet Him in eternity. In a long life's journey then, we have the privilege to remind ourselves of these fundamental truths over and again in assembly. The initiatory rite, the entrance into the body, the covenanting body, the identification with Christ, and then the feeding at the table as His children. It's a beautiful, beautiful provision from our Lord. And if you come today and have no connection to that Gospel message, no sense that Christ is your Savior, that you've been baptized and cleansed of sin in your life, not free of sin, none of us claims that, but that we have been washed and cleansed in sin. If you have no sense, no connection to that, then your life really is about you. It really is about what you own. It really is about the pleasures that you can find. The esteem that you can garner. It really is all about how you can be secure in who you are. The ease of life. The pleasures of life. And I think if you're honest... As you stand on those things, they're elusive and they're never wholly satisfying. And there is a message that stands before you today in symbolic form as well as in the spoken word that says there is life in Christ. There is in union with Him a oneness that satisfies every desire. Drink of Him and you'll never thirst again. Eat of Him and you will never hunger. Lord, we pray that You would move now, continuing so to move in our assembly as we observe this baptism, as we have come around this table. 
And Lord, how we rejoice with Paul and Jean and the way that you've led in their life coming at a later stage to this place of baptism, but by conviction, by desire to honor You. And Lord, how we as a church gather now around them and covenanting together rejoice with them. Thank You for what You've done in their life, for what You're continuing to do. And we just ask Your continued blessing on the remainder of our gathering together. Take these thoughts and drive them deep within us. And may it be that together here in the tasting of the bread, the eating of the bread and the drinking of the cup, in the observation of the baptism, that we will put down deeper roots in our own hearts that Christ crucified and risen is our story. That communion with Him is our life eternally. Meet with us here, we pray, and put Your blessing uniquely upon them, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.